Colossians chapter 2 this evening. And, uh, you know, a lot of times on a Wednesday night, we've, you've worked all day, you're tired, and the devil wants you to doze and nod, be distracted, and things of that sort. And uh, I'm keenly aware of that. If the Lord will help me, I want to preach something that will interest you this evening, as well as exhort you and edify you. And uh, if, if the Lord will help me, if you'll listen fast, I'll do my best to preach fast, and uh, but still yield to the Lord the glory that He is due. Colossians chapter number 2 this evening. I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. Paul writes to the church at Colossae, and he says, For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the Spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein, with thanksgiving. Father, we thank You for this time and we thank You for Your Word. Pray, Lord, tonight that Your will would be accomplished in this place and in our hearts and lives. Lord, I love You. And I ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Paul had never met the believers at the church at Colossae, but he had a great heart for them. You know, I've always... The Lord taught me a lesson through the book of Colossians that I have found to be a great help in my Christian walk. You know, the Apostle Paul, there's no telling the hundreds thousands of believers that he knew. Uh, there's no telling the scores of churches that God allowed him to plant. But here he is, and uh, he's sitting in a, in a jail cell, and he's writing to these churches, and uh, there's a, a, a myriad of places and a myriad of people he could have contacted, and yet he writes a letter to a church that he has never met before. And the reason he does that, if you read the first couple chapters, is because they were greatly encouraging to him. He talks in the first chapter about how he heard about their faith and heard about what God was doing in their midst, heard about their sincerity in the gospel. He says, you know, that encouraged me. And so he had a bunch of people he could have looked at that would have discouraged him. But instead, he made the decision to look at the folks that encouraged him. Let me tell you, that's a great lesson for you to learn in your life, that you'll always find people that will discourage you. It doesn't matter what the condition, doesn't matter what the situation, you will always find someone that will discourage you. But by the same token, I found this, God all the time and very often puts people in our lives that will encourage us as well. We may have to look a little further than we planned on to find them. Paul certainly had to. But he writes to these believers because they encourage him and he wants to encourage them. And in writing to them and talking about what God has done in their life, he basically boils down the Christian walk and boils down his hope and expectation for them in three little phrases that he gives us in verse number 7. Now, first look at verse 6. He says this, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. He begins by saying, you know, Christ changed your life. You have received Jesus Christ. And because you have received Him and seeing that you have received Him, you ought to walk in Him. 
That's a very simple lesson, but it's one that's often lost on us because, you know, sometimes we get the idea that, you know, God can do something like save us from hell, but He can't give us direction and peace and comfort and guidance in life. You say, well, I don't ever think that. Well, sometimes we do. We may not say it that way, but when we, when we come to a crossroads and we don't pray and ask for God's wisdom, that's sort of what we're implying. And when we come to trouble and heartache, as we inevitably will, and we don't pray and ask for God's comfort, that's sort of what we're saying. And Paul is basically just saying this to them before he talks about the Christian walk. He's saying, look, Jesus was enough for you. Jesus is enough for you. And Jesus will always be enough for you. You received Christ Jesus, so walk in Him. He was good enough and great enough and grand enough to save you. So He ought to be enough to sustain you and to strengthen you. And we know, of course, that He is. And I believe they knew that as well. And then he describes what that walk is going to look like. And he uses three words that I'd like to draw your attention to this evening. He says this for them in verse 7, that this is how they ought to walk in Jesus. This is what their walk should look like. He says, number one, they're to be rooted. He says, number two, they are to be built up in Him. And he says, number three, they are to be established in the faith. Now, we could draw a lot of truth from those words without really having to investigate at all, because we know what a root is, we know what a building is, and we understand what being established is. And yet, as we examine those words, we find they basically paint for us three pictures of what a Christian life can be likened to, three metaphors, if you will, uh, of what a good, strong, solid Christian life should be like. Now, let me go ahead and tell you, this is a Wednesday night message. Uh, now, it's not a Wednesday night message because the Sunday morning wouldn't abide it, but it probably is a Wednesday night message because the Sunday morning crowd probably wouldn't obey it. <laughs> they would not necessarily embrace the truth that is being relayed here. But those that are well underway in their walk for God will seek and should seek for their walk to be right. Listen, I, I want God to be approving of my life. And not just, and what I mean by that is not to say that I want Him to approve sin or, or approve that. I mean, I want my life to be pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever He says it ought to look like, that's what I want it to look like. And so He gives us these three basic phrases, and I want us to notice them this evening. First off, He gives us an agricultural metaphor. He says this, that we ought to be rooted. What does it mean to be rooted? Well, we know what a root is. The root is the foundation. And as we speak of a plant, it is that portion of the plant unseen that tethers it to the ground for sustenance and for strength. But as it relates to the life of the believer, I believe we could maybe sum it up this way in what he's saying. He's saying to the believers at Colossae, you ought to be as deep as you are tall. (laughs) You know, you ought to be as deep as you are tall. He's saying there ought to be some substance to your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. I fear that one of the things that has become epidemic in Christianity today is we have much leaves, but very little fruit and very little root when it comes to our Christian walk. We have a lot of talk, but we don't have a lot of walk. We have a lot of show, but we don't have a lot of substance in our Christian walk. I think there are a myriad of reasons for this, and I think we could uh, sit here and list hundreds of reasons that that might be so, from the climate of society to the uh, anemic nature of a lot of churches. But really what it boils down to is that our walk with God isn't to be blamed on anybody but ourselves. 
If it's not what it ought to be, we can't look to anyone else to fix it. And, uh, every, you, you ever met someone thought it was always somebody else's job to get it done? You ever met him? I've met people like that in life. And uh, one of the things that's hurting Christians is they think it's the job of the church or of the pastor or of their friends or of uh, any, any myriad of things to keep their walk with God right. Now, let me tell you something. If, 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 if I could keep your walk with God right, I'd do my best to do it. But I've learned this to be true. Even if I was willing to, even if I exerted and exhausted every bit of effort that I could, it's not my walk to keep. It's your walk to keep. Trust me, there's been times I've tried with certain people and in certain lives all to no avail. By the same token, I want you to pray for me. I want you to encourage me. I want you to help me. But my walk is my walk. It's not your walk. And nobody can walk my walk for me. I've got to live for and with the Lord Jesus Christ. No one else can do that for me. It is upon us to make this decision. I think there's a lot of reasons that it is so, this marginal Christianity that we see in the church today. But I think no matter what the reason, I think the consequence, the result is the same, that it it, uh, engenders weak Christians and weak Christianity. Turn with me to Luke chapter number 13. I want you to hear what the Lord says in Luke chapter 13. It gives us a little parable that I think may give us an idea of uh, some of what Paul is talking about here. In Luke chapter 13, look at verse number 6. The Bible says this, speaking of the Lord Jesus, it says, He spake also this parable. So this is, a, this is an illustration that the Lord is telling, a parable. He said, A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, And he came and sought fruit thereon, and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come, seeking fruit on this fig tree, and find none. Cut it down, why cumbereth it the ground? And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it, and dung it. And if it bear fruit well, and if not, then after that thou shalt... Cut it down. I want you to notice in this passage the problem that's pointed out. This man in this parable comes and he sees a a fig tree. And there are some things we can understand or assume from this passage. Evidently, this fig tree, it looked healthy. Or else he would never came to it looking for fruit. Evidently, it, it was bearing some leaves, some foliage. It was bearing some signs of life. Or he would never even gotten close to it to examine it for fruit. But year after year he came and he found nothing of substance upon this tree. It looked beautiful. It looked like all the rest, but there was no fruit in its life. Now, that describes a lot of Christians I know, don't it, you? A lot of people, and it's listen, it's not that they hate God. It's not that they hate church. It's not that they are uh, going out and getting drunk and, and killing folks and things of that sort. But at the end of the day, I mean, their Christian walk could be described as marginal at best. You know, the end of the day, their Christian walk is is merely just a, a thin veneer over a life preoccupied with the things of the world instead of the things of God. It's not that it's an ugly life. It's just that it's a barren life. It's not that they hate God. It's not that they're a thorn bush, but they're a fig tree not bearing any figs. And so the Lord looks at it and he sees this problem And then notice the pronouncement that's made. Look at verse 7. Well, what did he say? Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. What does he say? He says, Cut it down, why cumbereth it the ground? 
You know the Lord knows what's going on in our lives. He knows whether we're real or not. The Lord has has been dealing with me, and and I, I you know I hope I'm real. I want to be real as as real as I can be, and uh, you know. But but we all sometimes we get caught up into playing a game, and we get caught up into wearing a mask, and that you know that's just a part of living, I guess, in a civilized uh, you know culture, if we can call our culture civilized. And sometimes there is a great danger in thinking that that you know that you got everybody fooled. And there's great danger in thinking that you can uh, somehow hide what your true heart's intentions are and this, that, and the other. Time and again, the Lord has just reminded me in my life that He knows my heart. He knows my life. He knows my intentions. He knows my actions. He knows exactly who and what and where I am. This man, the, the Lord, the master of this vineyard, maybe nobody else was paying attention to what this fig tree looked like, but he knew whether there was anything real there or not. Let me tell you something. The Lord knows whether there's anything real in our lives. We may have everybody else fooled, but he knows. He knows whether there's something real in our life. And so when he finds it out, he says, cut it down. There's no pity. You know what? He's not worried about losing fruit because it ain't bearing no fruit. <laughs> He's not worried about losing fruit because it isn't bearing any fruit. And so he says, just cut it down. It's just taking up space. I, I'm going to say this as, as delicately as, as the Lord will allow me to. But let me tell you, I've known a lot of folks that that happened in their life. I've known a lot of folks right now that are that have gone home to be with the Lord, and they were part of His vineyard. They belonged to the Lord. They had been born again. But because they refused to bear fruit, there came a time when the Lord said, just cut it down while cumbereth it the ground. He would rather it be at home with Him than experiencing the heartache and sorrow of this world, and all the while bearing no fruit and bringing no glory to Him. That's a sad, that's, that's a stark reality, but I've seen it happen. I know that many of you have too. Well, what was the prescription? This is really kind of what I want you to notice as we examine this thought. Look at verse number 8. It says, And he answering said unto him, the, the, the dresser said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, what, till I shall dig about it and dung it. Now, you say, preacher, what is it that you're trying to say? What does this have to do with, with being rooted in the Lord Jesus? Well, when there was no fruit, the vine dresser did not address the fruit. Instead, he addressed the root. <laughs> he didn't come in and say, what kind of parasites are killing our fruit production? He didn't come in and say, what kind of abnormalities are growing on the extremities of the branch? But his wise and keen and experienced mind knew immediately that if there was a problem with the fruit, what it really was was a problem with the root, and he needed to do something to engender growth in the root of that plant. Now, we could say a thousand things about the roots of a plant. We could talk about all of the benefits, the strength that they give to the plant. Certainly they do. Uh, you know, there's trees, and there's some of them. Uh, you ever see a tree that is, you know, weak, prone to blow over? Usually it's because they got shallow roots. But then there's other trees that may not look that impressive on this side of the ground. But if you could look on the other side of the ground, you'd find a strong and extensive root uh, system that kept it tethered to the ground. We could talk about the sustenance that it, that it drew from the ground and the ability to tap into that uh, hidden resource to get the strength that it needs. We could draw a lot of analogies, but can I just boil it down very simply to say this, that every problem that this fig tree had was a root problem. 
The problem was not with what you were seeing on the outside. The problem was what could not be seen from the outside, what could only be seen from underneath. You know, that's true of our lives as well. At the end of the day, our real failures are failures in the secret places. Let me say that again. I I hope that means something to you. I, I hope it means to you what it means to me as we think about it. The real failures in our life are failures in the secret places. They're failures as we study our Bible or, or, or don't study our Bible. They're failures as we seek to go to the secret place of prayer and to call upon the Lord Jesus. They, they are failures within our heart as we allow things other than the Lord Jesus to be enshrined and enthroned in our heart and in our life. And anything that we see on the outside, but listen, by the time that it all falls apart on the outside, it already rotted and corrupted from the inside long ago. You say, what do we do about that, preacher? Well, the prescription is this. You gotta, there's got to be a little bit of digging done. <laughs> no doubt that's uncomfortable for the plant. No doubt that is not what the plant would want. No doubt that would in some ways unsettle the stability of the plant. But it must be done if the proper nutrients are to get down there. And then he adds some unpleasant things. He says, let me dung about it. Let me put some fertilizer in there. Let me put some things in there. There's got to be, listen, there's got to be some unpleasant things that engender growth if it's going to have that root system dig deeper. Now, that's tough, you know, but sometimes the Lord does that in our lives. Sometimes He puts us through some hard times to give us a little depth. Sometimes He puts us through some storms and through some some winds to give us a little depth. Listen, it's easy to pray and trust God when all your bills are paid and when your health is in tip-top condition and when your family's doing well and everything's going right. It's easy to pray and have faith in. But let me tell you something, when everything goes sideways and we've got to trust God and we've got to pray and ask God to move in and intervene in a situation... And it's not one of those, well, if it works out, it works out. It's one of those, Lord, it's got to work out because there's no other way it can do but to work out. In those times, we get some depth to our lives. Then it ain't about what the folks on Facebook think or what our neighbors think. Then it ain't about just playing the game and wearing the mask, but it's about getting alone with God and finding His mind on something, getting help, getting grace and strength from an Almighty God. Paul says you ought to be as deep as you are tall. Notice what he says, too. He says you ought to be rooted, but he says you ought to be built up. Now, if rooted is an agricultural metaphor, built up is an architectural metaphor. And it simply means, now you ready? This is deep. It means to build something. (laughs) I I, I knew I'd wow you with that. There are a lot of uh, passages that deal with it. And I actually, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, as I prepared for this message, the struggle was was not to find something to preach. It was try to find exactly what to preach because there's so much to preach. But there was a particular passage that came to my mind in Ephesians chapter 2. Turn over, though, with me. And I want you to notice what the Lord says about being built up and about what the Lord is doing in our lives. Now, as a person begins to walk with God, as he begins to get serious about his walk with God, he's going to begin to be rooted. He's going to have a, a Christian walk that is unseen to the world, but is, is lived in the presence of God, and uh, something that is real and genuine, and something that will stand the test of time. But not only is he saying that you're to be as deep as you are tall, but he's saying this, that when you build something, you ought to build it and allow the Lord to build it and build it God's way. Now, notice what he says in Ephesians chapter number 2. Now, seven times in the book of Ephesians, Paul uses the phrase, in whom. 
And uh, we spent a little time preaching through those about a year or two ago. But two of them are found in the very verses we're going to read uh, right now. Look at verse number 19. Paul says this, Now therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom, notice this, all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Now, we could say this in a strict exegesis of the passage. Paul is talking about the church. He's talking about the New Testament church and what God is doing in the church local and in the church general. But we could say this too, that uh, every single church, you know what a church is made up of, right? Saved, blood-washed, baptized believers. That's what a church is made of. And so the things that God is doing in our lives are the things that God is doing in the church. And the things that God is doing in the church are the things that God is doing in our lives. And there are basically three things that are mentioned here that I want you to notice. When we think of being built up, I want you to notice first he says this, that as God is building in our lives. By the way, he's not saying you ought to build yourself up. Now, Jude did say that. Jude said we ought to build ourselves up in the most holy faith. But when Paul says this in Colossians, he's describing their walk. And he's saying you ought to be rooted, but you also ought to be built up. Now, I've never known a building to build itself. Amen? A plant will root itself. But a building isn't going to build itself. But somebody, a designer, an architect, will build the building. And notice the things that are described. First off, he describes it as being fitly framed. Let me say this, that uh, as we examine our walk with Christ, we need to understand that God is designing us and has designed us for a distinct purpose. You know what I thought about when I, when I read this passage? There's a verse came to my mind. We talked about it a little bit as we taught in Apollo's course. Because Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, he's describing New Testament believers and he says, Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house, an holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. And he calls us lively stones. And boy, that just fits in perfectly with what Paul says when he says we have been fitly framed. Because the image is that of a stonemason building something out of stone, out of natural stone, in which he must assess and take into account the shape and the, the general dimensions of the stone. And, and he isn't going to just put it anywhere. He's got a specific place that he's going to put it. You see, that stone is a certain shape, and that shape is to be used and implemented and employed in the building of a building. And so Paul looks at the church, and he sees it as something that's fitly framed. Everybody's got a place. Everybody's got a job. Everybody's got a role. You know, part of the problem in the modern-day Christian movement, as we have uh, approached uh, a seeker-friendly mentality towards church ministry, and, you know, that's how it is nowadays. You know, it's buffet-style Christianity. And uh, we do everything we can to try to shape church around the lives of individuals instead of individuals shaping their lives around church and the things of God. And part of the great danger with that is this. We, we lead people to believe that their presence and participation in the house of God it is a, an inconsequential, a non-essential matter. Now, let me say this. I, I understand that we're all dispensable and disposable. 
There's not a one of us, from the pastor to any person in this room, but what if we give up on God? I mean, the church, what the old songs say, let the church roll on. And it certainly would. But that doesn't mean that there's not a place and function and responsibility for each and every one of us within this local body. And I think as Paul writes to the church at Galatia, he's saying this, you ought to fill that role. You ought to be built up. You ought to uh, allow the Lord to build and to add things into your life and to use you in the building that He is building and what He is doing. I wonder when the last time we viewed our life that way was. I wonder when the last time we looked at it and said, you know, God has something for me to do and to accomplish. And my greatest responsibility is to find, you know how the old timers would have said it, to find the will of God and to do it. That's what success really is. And we need to understand that God has designed us for a distinct purpose. And if we're not fulfilling that purpose, we're missing the whole thing. He has designed us. You know, some of the things in our life may be unpleasant. They may not be things that we have asked for. But as the master craftsman is honing and working in our life, he is fitting us for a distinct and proper Role. He describes him as being fitly framed. He says that he's designed us, but he says too, he says this, as a fitly framed, groweth together. Groweth. He says that he's developing us. He's doing things in our life that will cause us to be more attuned and more fit to his cause and to his purpose. I can't explain everything that happens in my life. If you can, God bless you, that's wonderful, but you're the first person I've ever met. Because we all have things that we can't figure out. And, you know, sometimes we say, well, you know, one of these days we'll understand. I guess one of these days when we get to heaven we might understand. But let me tell you something. There may be things happening in this life that you never get an answer about on this side of glory. Things that you don't understand. Things that you didn't ask for. Things that you didn't plan for. Or maybe sometimes things that you did have a hand in. Things that you did cause. But you prayed and asked God for grace and you still can't see the good out of it. But in those times we have to trust that God loves us. And that He is working all things together for good. And that He is growing or developing us in our lives. You know, God doesn't do anything by accident. And God doesn't do anything for no reason. Everything he has ever done and everything he is doing and everything he ever will do has a divine purpose associated with it. He is accomplishing something in your life and mine. And I hate to say this, I hope it doesn't sound ugly, but you don't have to understand it. You just have to obey it. You you don't have to understand everything that God's doing. And the fact is, if you wait to serve God until you understand him, you're never going to serve God. You just have to go on and let, listen, just give God a little credit. Amen? That's what Sarah is. She counted him faithful. She gave him a little credit. She said, I look back at his life. He's always been good to me, and so I figure he's always going to be good to me. So rather than sit around and ask God to explain every little thing to me, I'm just going to trust him because I've counted him faithful. Just give God a little credit and trust him with your life. You'll find that he's developing you. And what is he doing it for? Well, look at the next verse in verse 21. Uh, the end of it, he says this, Groweth into an holy temple in the Lord. Unless we wonder what that means. He said, In whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God, how? Through the Spirit. Not only has he designed us, and not only is he developing us, but his desire within it is to dwell within us and to have his dwelling within us be effectual in the world around us. 
Now, when he saved you, when you got saved by the grace of God, the Spirit of God took up residence in your heart and in your life. We are indwelt by the Spirit of God. Christ made that very clear. He said that, uh, that He'd go away, He'd send another comforter, and that He would not only be with you, but He would be in you, and that He would never leave you. And the New Testament describes for us very vividly that that is the, who we would call the third person of the Trinity, not by rank, but merely by uh, description, the Spirit of God. He is dwelling within us. And part of what God is doing in our life, in building us up, in shaping us, in changing us, in working in our life, is making us a more fit temple for the Spirit of God and vessel for the Spirit of God. In other words, and listen, the Spirit of God, He'll take up residence in any life once it is yielded to the Lord Jesus. But for Him to have the full reign and liberty and benefit, and for us to have the full benefit of His indwelling in our lives, we have to be yielded to Him. Yielded to Him. That's the only way, is if we're to be yielded to Him. That's what God's trying to do. We were talking a little bit about, uh, you know, Satan over in the Apollos course on uh, Monday night in 1 Peter chapter number 5. You know, we're talking about how we ought to have a fear of Satan. And that is certainly true. We ought to have a, a, a respect as we would an adversary, for he is our adversary. We ought to appreciate his power and uh, his ability to wreak havoc in our life. And one of the things I didn't get around to saying that I wanted to say is this, that though we are to have that attitude, though we are to recognize his power and that he can wreak havoc in our lives, you say, how do we combat that? Well, and I'll go ahead and tell you, the devil's not scared of you and me. He's not scared of you and me. But he is scared of the one that indwells us. So when we wrestle power away from the Spirit of God, you say, how would we do that? By disobeying Him. When He tells us to do something, when He leads us, when He guides us, it's for our good and for our and for God's glory. And when we disobey, we are wrestling away the influence of the Spirit of God away from our life. And it's in those moments that we are weak. But listen, when we yield to the Lord and obey Him, then it's no longer us, but the Spirit of God living in and through us as we obey Him. And what did John say? John said, greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. And that's how we combat Him. Listen, we don't combat Him by incantations. We don't combat Him. I know that the Lord Jesus quoted Scripture. And if you want to do that, that's fine. I'm not being dismissive of that. But I would suggest to you that the devil knows Scripture better than even you or I do. You say, how do we combat Him? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's how. You obey the Spirit of God. And through obeying the Spirit of God, the devil is coming up against a foe that he cannot overwhelm and cannot overcome. That's how it's done. And that's one facet, but we could describe a thousand of them. But what it boils down to is this. God has a desire to dwell in us, to have control of our lives, and to live through us that Christ might have a light and an influence in this world. He gives us an agricultural metaphor, and he gives us an architectural metaphor. But notice finally the next phrase. He says this, we're to be established in the faith. Now, this is an athletic metaphor. What the word established literally means is to find a pace and maintain it. That's what it means. To find a pace and to maintain it. Can I tell you this, that the Christian life is not a 50-yard dash. It's a marathon. You've heard it said before that slow and steady wins the race. You know that the race has already been won. Our destination has already been settled. You say, preacher, then what is our responsibility? We're supposed to find a pace and maintain it. 
the best thing we can do, because the, the finish line has been appointed from the day that we received Christ as our Savior. We don't have to worry that if we don't run fast enough or run well enough, all of a sudden we're going to trip up and wind up in hell. If you accepted Christ as your Savior, then it has been destined, it has been sealed, you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit of redemption. That has already occurred. And so it's upon us merely to run with patience the race that is set before us. And that's what Paul says, that we're to have a patient run in Hebrews 12.1. Run with patience the race that is set before us. Patience is a very hard virtue. Patience is not, and I've said this before, but patience, patience is defined by our attitude in waiting. Most of the time, you know, it's not a virtue to wait, because most of the time uh, we can't help but wait. <laughs> most of the time when we need patience, it's because circumstances are out of our hand. And it's not the fact that we're waiting that, that defines us as being patient, but rather it's the attitude with which we wait. And what Paul says about our walk with the Lord, or we might say our run in this race that is set before us, our run for the Lord, is he says this, we need to understand that that finish line has already been determined, and all we have to do is with patience and stability maintain the pace that God has for us. You know, one of the great things that has plagued the church in the last probably especially 50 years is a great unevenness in people's zeal for God. You know, one day, I mean, man, they're on fire. One day, I mean, man, they're excited. But then the next day, they're nowhere to be found. We were talking, uh, me and Brother Kerry, about, uh, you know, the folks. You ever, you ever met folks that get other folks out of church, folks proselyte and stuff? I mean, I've met people like that. I, you know, I've made my mind up. I don't want to be a keeper of the fish tank. I want to be a fisher of men. Amen? I don't want to spend my time trying to drag people away from other churches. Because I found this to be true. Most people, if they're dragged out from one church to another, they usually wind up out of church, is what happens to them. And one of the reasons for that is because usually the kind of people that will go and proselyte folks are usually idealists that that go through a honeymoon period at a church and and when inevitably something happens they don't like or don't expect or don't anticipate, oftentimes they themselves wind up outside of church. And so the people that they drug away from the place that God had them at uh, wind up bewildered and they wind up out of church themselves. And, you know, I've seen people like that. And, and uh, you know, those kinds of people, I mean, one minute, man, they're on fire. They're excited. And what, I mean, I, I've met people, <laughs> I won't say this just right. There, there's, I've sat and listened to people that are new members at Walridge Baptist Church and listened to them describe our church and thought to myself, what church do you go to? Amen. <laughs> you know, they'll say, oh, preacher, this is the best preaching I've had in 40 years. The people are so friendly. Nobody ever does anything wrong. Everybody's good looking. Everybody smells nice. And I'm thinking, look, God bless you for thinking that, but I, I don't know what church you go to, but that ain't the church I go to. And usually it's not long before the shine wears off and they find out what? That we're just a bunch of regular folks, right? Warts and all, failures and all, flaws and all. And that's just the reality of it. If, if, the, if the pace by which you run this race is determined by how you feel, then you're not going to be very patient or persistent in your run. And it requires persistence. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says this, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. So run, how does he say, that ye may obtain. Every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, 
So fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it under subjection, lest that by any means when I preach to others, I myself should be a castaway. Can I boil down what Paul is saying there into a very simple phrase? Paul is saying this. When folks run a race, a lot of folks run, but only one wins. And he's saying that ought to be our attitude about the Christian walk. It is a serious matter, and there's coming a day when we're going to have to give an account for the way that we've lived. So he says, I run not as uncertainly. In other words, I'm not running just uh, wondering whether or not I'm going to finish. I'm not running just wondering whether or not this race is worth it. And he says, I fight not as one that beateth the air. Uh, but, but certainly, he's saying, I, I don't fight as someone that's shadow boxing. I fight a real enemy. And what it boils down to, he's saying this, we ought to be passionate and persistent in our walk because it matters. It matters. Our walk with God matters. And because of that, we should be persistent. We ought not be on one day and off the next. We ought not be uh, lit up for the Lord and excited and ready to to take on uh, hell with a water pistol one second and then the next second be laying at church saying, Oh, God hates me, everybody. You know, God's forgot about me. I fell out of God's radar. We ought to be patient and persistent in our walk. One of the greatest encouragements that you'll ever find in life is when you find somebody that's a persistent Christian. Persistent and consistent. He denotes that we ought to be patient and persistent, but he denotes the proper run. He says this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, just one verse. He says, If a man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned except he strive lawfully. And he is basically drawing the picture of the ancient Olympian. He's saying this, It don't matter if you win, if you win dirty. That's what he's saying. It don't matter if you win, if you cheat to win. Goes back to that being rooted, doesn't it? Just because we can trick others into thinking that we're living for the Lord, that don't mean we've tricked God into thinking that. And so the run that we have, this, this pace that we find and sustain and establish and run with consistency and persistency and patience, we ought to do it certainly knowing that we're going to give an account for God, but we ought to do it within the boundaries and confines of what God expects as well. In other words, we ought to know that He's watching us and live in obedience to Him.